Welcome everyone to It's a Wrap with Rap. I am your host, Ron Rappaport. This podcast features people who have overcome life's challenges and adversities, people who can inspire, motivate, and educate us on an assortment of topics. Today, please let me introduce my wonderful guests, Eddie and Katie Zingelman. Eddie was born and raised in the Atlanta, Georgia area, one of five siblings. Before Eddie was born, his brothers were experiencing eye issues of retinitis pigmentosa, RP for short, a group of related eye disorders that cause progressive vision loss. The first sign is usually a loss of night vision, which becomes apparent in childhood. Over time, the disease progresses and can eventually lead to blindness in adults. Eddie was tested as a toddler for RP and was given the news he too had it. In total, four out of the five siblings were diagnosed with it. Despite having RP, Eddie's life was not defined nor stopped by it, as we will talk about his overcoming this life challenge and making a success out of this adversity, leading into making handcrafted country home furnishings. Eddie, through his journey, faces his challenges and wants to inspire and provide others with disabilities the opportunity to work and build their sense of accomplishment and purpose in life. Welcome, Eddie and Katie to the podcast. Thank Hello. you. Thank you so much. It's great to have you guys. You have such an inspirational story. Uh, our you. audience is always looking to listen to something like this and, and they'll love it. Eddie, you were diagnosed at the age of three with RP. How did that affect you at, at that young age? Uh, what was like your interaction with other children, going places, doing things, that kind of thing? Well, in an early age, the due to the nature of the condition, my vision when I was younger was relatively stable. Um, you know, the first thing that goes is night vision. So I had, you know, somewhat, you know, I, I wore very thick glasses because that was before the age of, you know, contacts and things like that. So yeah. it was, you know, there were challenging times. There was a lot of things that I wanted to do, you know, you know, friends would have activities and, you know, they'd be outside playing at night and I would be okay until it got dark. And then I was sidelined and I wanted nothing more than to participate, but there was this, you know, there were limitations that I faced at such a young age that I did not know how to handle. And I think, you know, looking back, I think I handle them. All right. You know, I didn't, you know, it didn't, uh, you know, stop me from pursuing things, but it definitely takes a mental toll at a young age. You know, one of the things specifically that I ran into is I played baseball for a long time yeah. and, you know, I was, I was proficient and, you know, we would have tryouts and coaches would say like, man, we want to put you everywhere. You know, where do you want to play? And we would have day games and I would be, you know, diving for balls in the outfield or pitching or playing in the infield. And it was great. And then the night game comes and, I can't see the ball when I'm hitting or in the outfield or in. So there was, you know, and it was tough for, it was tough for me because I, I knew I could do it, but I just was starting to run into this increasing limitation. Sure. You just couldn't see it. Tell yeah. us how your parents uh, handled the RP diagnosis with you and the other siblings. What words uh, of wisdom and teachings did they instill in you over this and what were their expectations of what you could do? You know, they didn't treat us any different. They treated us like normal kids, but they didn't ask us to do anything that they knew we couldn't do. You know, they, you know, back in the days when, 
you know, I was able to drive for a couple of years in my late teens, but they didn't ever ask me to, you know, go driving at night. If there was something that needed to be done and I needed to be home before it got dark, then that was, that was understood. And it was kind of the same with my siblings that they never, you know, they never expected us to, um, you know, to do anything beyond our own limitations, but they didn't treat us any differently. They, they instilled in us, look, you know what you need to do. You know, you have your limitations. You need to set goals and you're going to have obstacles that you need to overcome, but it's on you to figure those out. Nobody can tell you how to do those things and nobody can do those things for you. Yeah. So it was, it was a good set of lessons to have growing up of, look, you need to learn now to be, you know, to be resilient. Absolutely. So Eddie, did you think about uh, your future at all? Uh, early on pertaining to the RP uh, diagnosis and its limits? Did it, did it even enter your mind growing up? Not very much. I had a fair bit of denial about my condition because, you know, it, the condition goes through waves where there'll be several years where it'll be relatively stable. And then there'll be a short period where it'll go downhill a little more and then a few more stable years. So, you know, I think mostly about my years, you know, in middle school and high school, it was relatively stable. I could still function in a regular classroom setting, but, you know, I, I knew, I knew that it was coming, you know, a, you know, worse vision was coming, but I didn't really know exactly what that was going to entail. And I had people around me telling me what was coming, but i I didn't really believe it because I was okay at that time. Yeah. Yeah. So can you describe to us uh, how your early and later schooling, uh, like your high school years went, and were there any accommodations uh, made for you uh, due to the RP diagnosis? Yeah, there were. You know, I was in um, the high school I ended up going to was the only high school in our county that had a visual resources program. So, you know, it just have it was this happenstance that I was at that school that had a couple class periods a day where if I needed extra time taking a test or I needed something in large print, I could go and have a quiet place to be able to to kind of work at my own pace. And there were a lot of other kids from around the school district who would come, you know, to the same classes for a lot of the same reasons. And in high school, I learned how, you know, from ninth grade up until the year I graduated, I learned how to read Braille and actually took cane training. So, you know, you know, going back to me saying, you know, there were people who knew what was coming, but I was in denial. I was walking around taking cane training, but I could still drive home at the end of the day after my day at school. So it was <laughs> I wonder like, I wonder how that 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 that, that went with the other kids. <laughs> I can you know I had a close group of friends who knew what was going on, but to everybody on the outside who had seen me walking around the halls blindfolded, you know, in the afternoon. And then a couple hours later I'm hopping in my truck and pulling out. It had to have been strange, but there was, you know, yeah. It, it had to have looked kind of goofy, but there was a lot of people who knew the situation. Knew yeah, don't, don't get on I-75 with this guy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <never done> that. <laughs> what, what did you do uh, after high school? Did you have a career choice in mind? And, 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 yeah. what, and what was that? So the last couple of years of high school, I wanted to get into broadcasting. And I had researched broadcasting schools, you know, the the school I was gearing up to go to was Middle Tennessee State University in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. 
and I started laying the groundwork and I did a brief internship at a big radio station in Atlanta and, you know, tried to get a grasp of the ins and outs of, of the industry. But what happened the year I graduated and the following year, that would have been 2009 and 2010, it wasn't a very promising career field looking forward. You know, I had people in the industry who told me, look, you're not going to make a lot of money, most likely, and you're going to be having to move around an awful lot. Yeah. And this was also at the advent of podcasting and, you know, the different forms of satellite radio who are kind of, you know, taking a big chunk out of the terrestrial radio market. And these were all things that people in the industry were telling me. And they're like, look, you know, if you really want to do this, go for it. But if you're looking for an easy road, this isn't it. Like, this is not it. And these are people who are seasoned veterans in the industry. So I was then in a situation where I was graduating high school with no plan moving forward because these things just compounded very in a very short amount of time. So I graduated high school and went to work in an auto parts store at, you know, when I was really trying to figure out what I was going to do. Okay. Now, did you go to a broadcasting school for a while? I did not. This all happened the last year of uh, high school. And I didn't really want to jump into this thing that people were telling me was not a good idea too. So at that time, I did not go to broadcasting school. I did move up to Athens, Georgia to go to a community college up there, but okay. I, was only, I was only able to survive for one semester before I just ran out of money and, and had to come back home. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't really tough it out. You know, I didn't have any financial support and I just, I couldn't do it. Yeah. So, so what year was that when you moved back home? Uh, that was 2011 when I moved back. 2011. Home. So okay. That was 2011. So I worked, you know, from 2009 to 2011, just working in an auto parts store and, you know, trying to save money and, you know, gotcha. Okay. So, so we roll, we roll ahead and I understand 2013 rolls up and something great happens to you. Tell us about that. Yeah, so Katie and I met in 2013, and um, you know, Katie was working at uh, one of the biggest hospitals in Atlanta, and I had always had an interest in the medical field, but I had never really looked into seriously pursuing it because, you know, going to nursing school was, you know, that was an expensive endeavor, and I had already tried to strike it out and go to school, and it didn't work out. So, you know, Katie and I were dating for a couple of months and I took a job interview for a surgical tech position and I got the job and that's what started a four year venture working at the hospital. You know, Katie and I were both working at the same hospital and, um, you know, we commuted to work together uh, every day. And I also had to stop driving in 2013. So you know, a lot of, a lot of things happened. Katie and I met, then I had to stop driving. Then we started working together in the same hospital and commuting to work together. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. it was a busy year. <laughs> yeah. It sounds that way. Katie, what was the attraction other than Eddie's obvious good looks? Uh, what was the attraction to Eddie about? And, and what were your thoughts about partnering uh, with an individual uh, that's going to need you know, a lot of assistance due, due to due to his limitations. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, 
um, when we had initially met, which was online conveniently enough. Um, and so we had that opportunity to really build kind of a rapport before officially meeting. And Eddie was very transparent from the get-go. Yeah. Um, so he was open and honest about his condition and, um, and, and prepared me for it, but I don't quite think I understood the nature of it until um, we officially met. And of course, we're seeing each other in person for the first couple of months. Um, I remember our, our very first date was at a pizza place and uh, it was 6 30, 7 o'clock and literally the sun's going down and this is our first date. He's like, I gotta go and just drives off. And I was like, well, I'm not quite sure if this was a good first date or not. Uh, but 15 minutes later, he texted me and said, you know, I want to see you again. Um, so the rest is history. Um, yeah, I think yeah. that was like, and Eddie's right. It did, um, transform pretty quickly at uh, the, the disease progressed pretty quickly, uh, really starting in 2013. But what really attracted me to Eddie was obviously his transparency and honesty, but his resilience, um, his, uh, independence, um, his motivation. So, um, he, he has this very unfortunate disease that is only going to get worse, but he continues to try and find the positive. Um, and one of, uh, one of his sayings that is constantly spread is it can always be worse. Um, so being partnered with someone who can lift me up, um, and kind of lift this situation up and see the positive, um, is really encouraging and inspiring. Um, so that positive attitude has really gone a long way, um, in our story. Sure. So, so now you're a couple, so let's backtrack a little, uh, Eddie, uh, pursuing your next avenue of employment. And I understand Katie helped you in that, which you alluded to. Mm-hmm. So you, you, you get a job in the medical field, but I understand you hit a roadblock there. Can you tell us about that time period at the medical center to say the fall of 2016? Yeah. So, you know, for those for the majority of those four years I was there, it was great. You know, it was really hard work, but it was also fascinating. And I was learning a lot. And, you know, one year into the job, I've been approached by management and they said, look, you seem to have a pretty good grip of this. You seem to be interested. If you want to go and, you know, further your education, we will help support that. If, you know, you sign on to stay with us for a few years, And that was very enticing because, you know, I I would have loved to have gotten a nursing degree and had a stable career in something that I really, you know, enjoyed and was fascinating. Sure. But it started getting really tough, you know, three, four, you know, into the fourth year that I was there, the surgical unit had started transitioning into a lot of robotic surgeries. And that means the surgical rooms are dark. And if I had to go into that room to move around a piece of equipment or deliver something to the nurses or the surgeons in there, I started to become more of a liability than an asset. And that really hit home. That really hit home in one specific instance where there was a patient quite literally bleeding to death in one of the operating rooms. And they threw me a stack of paperwork orders and I had to get down, you know, three floors to get to the blood bank, get products and get back immediately. And, you know, I set off, I got down there and there's a very specific set of, um, 
you know, send the things you have to do when you pick up these blood products where you have to dictate back and forth to the clerk who works there is a, you know, kind of a, a you know, very safety oriented process of making sure you're getting the right products. Yeah, you had to and, double check, double check. Yeah, 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 yeah. You, you double and triple check it. And yeah. I was sitting there looking at a piece of paper and I could not read anything on it. And they're standing wow. there looking at me like I have three heads and I'm going, look, I don't know what to tell you, but I can't read this. And they're sitting there and they're like, well, you need to. And at the same time, the surgeon is calling the desk and screaming that he needs these things now. And out of frustration, the clerks at the blood bank are like, look, we'll just, we'll double check this ourselves and get him on his way. But that was a really big wake up call of like, look, this isn't just about me and it becoming increasingly more uncomfortable. Something bad could legitimately happen because I do have some pretty serious responsibilities. Yeah. Yeah. And it was, it was at that point where I approached the management and I said, look, I want nothing more than to stay and to keep fighting it out, but I'm becoming a liability and this is not going to be good. I don't yeah. want you to end up with a lawsuit on your hands because I don't know when to hang it up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it was in the fall of 2016 that I, I finally just had to say like, look, I, I cannot do this anymore. It's, it's not, it's not a smart thing for me to be doing this anymore. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and you, you made a great, the only decision you could make, really. So right. so you wind up 2016, and the RP is is throwing some roadblocks up there, and you're back at home. So what was life like back at home with Katie? I understand, Katie, uh, you were working from home. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, Eddie, what was, you're not the kind of guy who gives up. You're not a right. quitter. So what was your next plan going forward. Uh, Tell us about that. So there was a few months where, you know, I was thankful to have a partner who was providing and we had a roof over our heads. And, you know, honestly, even at that time, if I didn't work, we would have been okay with Katie's salary. But it was incredibly frustrating for me because I want to be busy and productive and, you know, contribute and provide. Right. So, I would find myself on a Tuesday or Wednesday afternoon, Katie was hard at work and I was just cleaning the house, just to keep from going crazy, just to have something productive to do. You know, I started, I started kind of falling back on, you know, my background that I had when I was younger, working on cars and, and automotive stuff. And I decided that I wanted to learn how to build transmissions and turn that into a business. So, you know, we went to a salvage yard and I pulled out three or four, you know, pulled three or four transmissions out of different vehicles and different styles. And literally, you know, through the course of about six months with the help of tutorials on YouTube and, you know, some new tools, I learned how to build a wide range of different transmissions. But I never took the I never took the business side of it into account. I focused on the how just not the how, you know, how to do it, not the how am I going to make money doing this, Yeah, which would involve having, having a shop that costs a lot of money, most likely other employees. And then I never took into account the fact of how fast the, auto, the automotive industry progresses with technology and the fact that I would almost constantly be having to take further education classes to be able to even keep up. 
It seems like every other day there's a new car with a new engine and transmission combination. Yeah. And I, 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 there's no way I would have been able to, to keep up with that. You know, six months after leaving the hospital, I learned this new school, this new skill set that I didn't have anything. I couldn't do anything with it. And I had money and a lot of time invested into it. And again, I was just finding myself just sitting on my hands, wishing I could be doing something, but I didn't have anything to do. Yeah. So and I, I love that perseverance. And, you know, you're, you're, you're trying your best to find something. Katie, what were you thinking about all this? Did, did you support all these ideas? Uh, did you have uh, a lot of input into it and that type of thing? Yeah, no, I mean, it, it was um, definitely a, a challenging time. I think really throughout our, our relationship, we've had our ups and we've had our downs um, but knowing Eddie's personality and just him naturally being kind of a fighter um, and having that, again, that perseverance, um, uh, I knew that there would be that end result that it eventually he would find something that would, um, that he would feel that sense of purpose and accomplishment. And so it required a lot of patience and a lot of conversations, a lot of hard days, a lot of good days, but I knew all of that would be worth it with the end result, which is kind of, of course, the path that we're on now. Um, but everyone has to go through those trials and tribulations. And I think if we just focus on um, what's to come, I think that's what kind of helped motivate me and helped me to try and continue to motivate him um, on those hard days. You know, I'm, I, I'm just thinking of something, and I think our audience is probably maybe thinking the same thing. Uh, you're talking about, for example, the transmission you know, getting into that and, and, and working with the parts. Can you give us, the audience, an idea maybe in percentages of what you're like with zero to a hundred, what was your vision? What was your vision like at that time? At that time, I probably had, you know, if I were to put it on a percentage scale, I could probably see about 25 to 30% of what somebody with normal vision can see. Wow. You know, my, my acuity was just, even at that time, it was no good. Yeah. Um, even with, you know, the best contacts and glasses that doctors can find. Yeah. And, you know, uh, even at that time, I was in a position where I couldn't see anything in low light. And also couldn't see anything if it was really bright. So yeah. that's when it was, it was in that time when I was learning how to build the transmissions that really helped me even now of not being, you know, I couldn't trust my eyes anymore. And yeah. it's a really strange thing when you're looking at something, but you can't trust what your eyes are telling you. Mm -hmm. So I started kind of, you know, seeing with my hands more and trusting more about what I could feel than what I could see. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, you know, your brain starts to adapt and it's never great, but it's better than just looking at something and having to trust it. You can put your hands on it and say, okay, I think I see this detail. Okay. I can feel this specific detail. That is correct. It's almost like a check and balance system within your own brain of seeing and being able to feel. At this time, was there any, a place that was offering any kind of uh, counseling for uh, for RP uh, people that you could reach out to and say, 
hey, can you give me some tips on how to deal with it or anything like that? There probably was, but I wasn't looking. Yeah. Um, and I don't, I, I couldn't really tell you why I wasn't looking, but I was just focused on just trying to make something for myself happen. And, you know, there probably were some great resources back then that would have been a tremendous help, but I wasn't aware of them. Yeah. Know? But even, yeah. you know, today there absolutely are. And for anybody who is in that position now, go find some help and some resources because there's a lot of, there are a lot of successful people with the same eye condition that I have that would be more than willing to help you with anything you need. Yeah, that's, that's great to know. Uh, so 2016 rolls around and uh, you guys buy a house. Mm-hmm. I guess that's what, is that up in the Atlanta area? Yeah, that was in Canton, Georgia, about oh, I know what Canton is. to an hour north of Atlanta. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. I, I've been there many times. Um, <laughs> so there's no... Uh, well, there's a there's a minor problem. Uh, the, the money is lacking for some furniture. But right. uh, I always have this saying, instead of uh, saying, uh, why, why is this happening to me? I always say, why is this happening for me? Right. right. And so with that in mind, uh, that led to a new path. And right. tell us about uh, this furniture situation and the start and the result of what occurred, uh, building your skill set and all and all you do to promote it. Tell us. About yeah, that's that. a great that's a great question. So yeah, in 2016 we bought a house and we, you know, we were we were doing okay, but we didn't have enough money for the things that we really wanted. And Katie had been looking online and showing me pictures of furniture and tables that you know both of us loved, but we didn't love the price tag of. It was something that we could just not afford at that time. And I had an automotive background and a metalworking background, but I had never really done anything with wood. So I had a garage full of mechanic tools, but I decided, hey, I'm going to try and build something that somewhat resembles this thing that you like. And, you know, we'll just see how it turns out. So, you know, we went down to Lowe's or Home Depot and picked up a truckload of lumber, uh, hand saw a hammer and a box of nails and that's all the woodworking equipment that i had and through again through a lot of youtube tutorials got something that stood on its own and didn't immediately fall over and you're, you're, was, you're starting from ground zero, zero. yeah literally pretty much time. Yeah. yeah i mean i had no woodworking background and it looked wow. like it looked like the charlie brown of <laughs> dining tables I wasn't happy with it, but Katie loved it. So it went in our kitchen and, you know, I had started thinking about it. I'm like, you know, this was kind of fun. And I started looking around at the market and this, you know, the farmhouse rustic furniture style was getting very popular. So I'm like, well, let me make a couple. And, you know, really haven't got a bunch more uh, materials and a few new tools and just started doing that just one or two at a time. Mm-hmm. And I would take some pictures and then sell them on Facebook Marketplace. And sometimes I would break even. Sometimes I would just, you know, just come a little bit short. But it was enough of this a minuscule cash flow just to barely keep things moving. But I did, you know, at that time, I wasn't saying, okay, well, in five years, I want to have a million dollar company. I know I have so much to learn because there is an endless amount to learn when it comes to woodworking. People who have been doing this 50 years still have things to learn. So 
you know, I just started setting out and built a few, sold a few, built a few more, sold a few more. And, you know, we weren't really saving any money, but I was still just making enough. And it was about a year and a half into that, that we got approached by one of the largest furniture retailers in the Atlanta area. And they wanted to try and test out some of the dining tables in their showrooms. So we built a few for them. How did they find well, out? We had, gone, we had gone down one of their locations and I had dropped a few business cards around their showroom okay. and just kind of spent a few minutes talking to one of the sales guys. Yeah. yeah. So, so now you're getting into they, marketing. Become, now you're getting into the marketing field. Yeah. 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 Kind of guerrilla marketing. Yeah. Um, so we had, we kind of, you know, wedged our way in there and they, you know, they said they wanted a few to put in the showroom and, uh, you know, they had sold out really quick. And next thing we know, once every week or two, there was a box truck from them in front of our house and we were moving three or four dining tables in there and we weren't making a lot of money on it, but it was enough to, you know, to keep things moving. But the biggest part of that was I saw it as a proof of concept. Like, look, if I'm selling something that they can put a four figure price tag on in a showroom, we might have something here. Yeah. So we started, you know, building even more furniture and, you know, selling things on my own, restocking from them. But in 2019, we made the decision that we wanted to move up to the Nashville area to be close to Katie's family. So we moved to Tennessee. You know, I, I guess the question, the question that comes up in everybody's mind is, that the furniture that you're building, it's not all the same stuff. It's different things, it's right? It, right. And multiple styles. And you have to, like you said, you, you're pretty much uh, working with your hands, your hands, right. not your eyes. Right. And it's just amazing because nobody, you, nobody gave you any formal training in woodworking. You just did this all on your own, right? Right. Right off, right. Right off YouTube. Yeah. I mean, how long does it take to say make one one style and then have to change to another style? How hard is that? At that time, it was really hard. It took a long time because I had very basic tooling, and um, you know, it would take me two weeks to build a dining table. And then, if somebody wanted one in a different style, I would intentionally back myself into a corner where I'm looking at this thing that a customer wants and I've never even seen anything like that, mm -hmm. but I would get a good look at it or have Katie describe what it looks like. And I'd say, yeah, I can do it. Just give me a few weeks and then figure it out. Mm -hmm. You know, I think the best thing that I've done for myself in this process is constantly keeping my back up against the wall and not falling into any sort of comfortability because I don't feel like I could grow if I just find one thing I'm really good at and then just keep doing that. I want to be deep and wide. So keep finding new things that I haven't done, take on that challenge. And then that's one more tool in my belt that I can move forward with. That's just amazing. So Eddie, where do you get your ambition and your, and your perseverance to pursue forward and not give up? And how much uh, did Katie have to do with that? You know, I, I grew up with my, you know, my dad ran his own business when I grew up and that was a big influence because it was proof that it could be done. And, 
you know, never really, you know, it, the business was just good enough to support our family. You know, we were never well off, but it, it served its purpose. And I saw the proof that it could be done. So I knew that with my condition, it was going to be hard, but I had also grown up around it my entire life. So that was a really good thing to be exposed to. But, you know, when Katie came into my life, she was a constant source of motivation and inspiration because I do have hard days. And, you know, there's, you know, if you go through the course of a week, we're on top of the mountain and we're in the dirt below it every other day, just based off, off of, you know, the visual condition and all the outside things that influence, uh, you know, influence us. So, you know, she is a great source where if I'm having a hard day in the shop, she's really the only one who can talk me off the ledge because I, I know what I'm capable of. I also understand how limited I am and I, it, it gets me some days. It just flat out gets the best in me some days, but Katie is really the only one who can get me out of some of those hard times. Well, I would imagine that building this furniture, there has to be a, like a perfection type uh, influence on you. In yes. other words, in other words, you, it has to be perfect. Okay. Uh, so Eddie, I'm thinking uh, there has to be a perfection uh, type of influence on this. When you're building this, it's got to be perfect, right? You can't right. have imperfections. So that's got to be somewhat, I would imagine, frustrating at times. It is, you know, there is, in the, in the process of building out an order, I know, I can tell by feel if something is flat and if it's square using my tools, the actual structure of a piece of furniture, I can get perfect. But I can also spend an entire day in the shop putting on a finish and a color and look at it and say, okay, I think it's perfect. And then I'll have Katie come down to the shop and look at something and say like, okay, there's a few spots missing. We need to touch this thing up, you know, mm -hmm. and it takes extra hours to, to finish these things up. So that's when it becomes frustrating for me because I want it to be perfect and I don't want to have to bother anybody with having to come back behind me right. and have to fix something. Right. So you know, those, you know, when I talk about having good days and bad days, that leads to a lot of sour days where I'll be, you know, thinking I'm riding high and say, Hey, come look at what I've done. Then all of a sudden it's, Hey, we got to touch this up. And it's yeah. like, okay. <laughs> well, it, it's ups and downs. There, there, there's right. about it. just yeah. like life. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, so you guys in 2019, you moved to, you, you moved to the Nashville area. Um, yeah. Can you, I guess you got a bigger house. Can you tell us about your surroundings with the business? Yeah. We, we found the absolutely perfect house. You know, we moved up here and we stayed in an Airbnb in downtown Nashville for over three months. And we were just watching the real estate listings. And as soon as something came available that caught our eye, we were immediately there looking at it. Mm -hmm. And we found a house about 20 minutes west of downtown Nashville that was on, it's on five acres. It has a detached shop and a barn on it. Wow. And it wow. was absolutely the perfect thing for us for expanding and running the business. Sure. Because before sure. I had was a garage and it was starting to get a little small. So now we have a lot more space to be able to, uh, you know, produce more furniture and, and grow. 
So where, where, where are you now with the business? Can you tell us about um, the products that, that the company's offering? Yeah. So right now we just launched our website about a month ago and we've got over 30 chair styles. And if you add up all the dining table possible configurations, we have over a million possible options for, wow. for tables. When you factor in size, color, and style, we have over a million different combinations and we have you know, items for living room, bedroom, and home office. So we've really expanded our offerings when we got more space. And the status of the business right now is I'm doing as much as I possibly can right now. And I am not very far from needing a substantial amount of help. Mm-hmm. I'm, we're going to have to hire soon because I'm, I'm running at the highest RPM I possibly can. And I'm starting to fall behind. So we're going to need to bring on our first employee here soon. Wow. And great. Katie, you know, Katie helps with the deliveries and with touch-ups and things like that. But, you know, Tennessee is, is a great state for supporting small businesses and it has been very good to us so far. Excellent. Eddie, who's had the most influence on your life? You know, I think my siblings as a collective, to be totally honest, everybody, Everybody has been so influential to me and all of them in different ways have shown me where I need to improve and supported me in the things that I was good at. And none of them are afraid to step in and say, hey, you might not be seeing this area, but, you know, you can be a little stronger here or also be really good about encouragement. And I have had so much help from my siblings to get me to where I am today. And I'm just incredibly thankful for all their help. All of them have been a very, very big influence on me. Eddie, Eddie, how are the other siblings doing? How are they doing? They have all done really good for themselves. You know, my two oldest, my two oldest brothers who have the same condition have both had great careers. They have both since had to stop working but they did great. They got through college with business degrees and they had jobs in the corporate world and they did very well for themselves. And um, my brother, Patrick, who was just a couple of years older than me, the only sibling who doesn't have the condition is doing, you know, doing great for himself. He has a great career and he's always supportive and, you know, is always there to help out. And my younger sister, who has the condition is, you know, she's moving forward and she's taking care of business and doing really well. That's great to hear. Katie, uh, how are you dealing with the caretaking aspect of this mm-hmm. and the differences uh, the, uh, of the person and the, diag- and the diagnosis? How do you, how do you handle that? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I mean, again, I think collectively we have our good and bad days, but I think naturally as a human, um, I'll have my rough days and automatically I have this sense of, of guilt, um, because I am fully sighted and I'm perfectly healthy. And why should I be having a bad day when, when I have no limitations, but the truth of the matter is just as much as his feelings are valid so are mine. And it's, if I'm not in the right headspace, then I, I, I can't, um, take care of him. I can't take care of our, of ourselves as a unit. 
so it's been really important that I do take care of myself, my mental health, and um, to, to recognize those hard days and to receive the support that I need um, as an individual. So there's therapy groups for spouses, partners, family members um, who, for example, specifically for RP, um, a discussion, that kind of unbiased discussion. So it's been really important that in order for me to, to be present for him and to be here, I need to take care of myself too. Um, so I think that's the most important thing as a caretaker is to not forget that. Um, but also too, on those hard days, it's really easy to get frustrated and to get angry. And it's been so important to, uh, to separate um, the diagnosis from the person um, I, I, we've, we've heard a lot of relationships, a, a lot of marriages that have, have gone through this. And when you reach that point of kind of resentment, uh, for the, the situation that you're in, it's really hard to come back from that. Yeah. Um, so it's, yeah, it's been, an, it's been really important for me to focus on. I can be angry with this disease and be frustrated, but the moment that that turns back to Eddie, um, that will, uh, really cause a rift in, in our relationship, in our marriage. So, um, his, his disease does not define him. It is, it's a, a part of his life, but he is so much more than just, um, his diagnosis. Um, so that's, that's been a lot of things that I do like. To yeah. That, 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 that's all good advice for everybody out there in the caretaking uh, yes. part of it. Eddie, Eddie, this podcast is being listened to by all kinds of people going through, uh, their own unique challenges, uh, whatever that may be. Please tell us your thoughts of advice and wisdom uh, that you have learned over time that you can tell them to make things positive for themselves. The one thing that's really helped me is the notion that there's no value in victimhood. You know, the real value in your life is in resilience because whether you like it or not, the world keeps moving and it moves on. So if you sit, if you sit in despair and you stop moving, you're going to get left behind. You may have people in your life who will support you, but you're, nobody's going to carry. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the best thing that has worked for me that I would encourage anybody to do is set a list of goals that you want to accomplish. Mm -hmm. And in that list of goals, set daily accomplishments as small as they may be. Great things happen over time in very small steps. People get discouraged when they try and take too big of a bite and fail and then stop. So wake up every morning with a to-do list that you've made the night before and just make sure you take care of a few critical tasks that get you incrementally closer to your goal every single day. It's the way I've gotten you know, to where I am now. And it's the only thing that's going to really help me be able to move forward towards, you know, my ultimate goals is just making a power list of daily tasks to accomplish. And my only focus that day is to make sure all of those things get done and your day is not done until all of those tasks are complete. Awesome. Uh, awesome advice. Katie, for a uh, question for you first. Yeah. Uh, and then Eddie, what excites you the most going forward? No, absolutely. I mean, we've, we've had the ability to share Eddie's story um, locally, um, of course, in Georgia, now here in Tennessee. 
And I think that. And now you're uh, worldwide. You're worldwide now on this. Uh, well, <laughs> exactly. And so, and I think people, especially now in the last few years, when, when they're purchasing a product or looking at something that's meaningful, have a story behind it is really um, um, exciting. And so we ha- we're not just selling a product. There's a story and a purpose behind it. And right. so I'm really just excited to continue to share Eddie's story and that um, there is um, uh, resilience. There is a bright light at the end of the tunnel. You know, you're, it's, it's not this constant um, challenge and just and, and being thrown kind of on your knees constantly. There, there are there are those abilities to be able to um, to find triumph through adversity. So I, I think his story can hopefully impact um, um, many people. And, and so that's what I look forward to is not only as business growing, but also continuing to share our story. Right. And Eddie, same thing for you. Uh, same question. What excites you the most going forward? So, you know, even diagnosis, my health, you know, and my eyesight moving forward is not looking good, but I'm still excited for the future because I know the trajectory that we're on with our business. And I know that we're going to be successful because we're not going to stop. And, you know, I'm excited because the more successful the business is, the more people we will be able to help because I eventually want to start offering um, internships for people with low vision that want to learn how to do, you know, do woodworking and build furniture. So I'm excited to be able to offer those opportunities in the future and be able to help more people. That'd be great. Yeah, that, that's awesome. Okay. Uh, either one can answer this one. How can people contact you? So I can be reached on Facebook and Instagram at Eddie Zingelman. And they can also personally reach me through the website at Eddie at TennesseeWoodworks.com. They can also check out all the furniture we build at TennesseeWoodworks.com. All right, Katie. Uh, what about you? Can, can people contact you? They, there might be a lot of people out there you know, uh, who are caretakers hearing this story, maybe they want some words, words of wisdom or whatever. Is that possible? Absolutely. I I would love to love to help. Yeah. So my Facebook is Katie Zingleman. And then my email is katie.zingleman at gmail.com. I would love to, to speak to anyone that needs a listening ear. Sounds great. I want to thank you so much, Eddie, uh, for sharing your story. And, and Katie, for sharing your story as, as well as the journey of being uh, the caretaker. You both are so authentic and honest, and you really you. exude uh, nothing but inspiration, hope, and confidence uh, for your future. I know your, your future will be great, and I wish you nothing but the best going forward. Uh, comments you. and suggestions out there to make the podcast better, you can email me at it's a wrap with rap at gmail.com. Our website is it's a wrap with rap.com. It's just been uh, rehauled, and you can even rate the podcasts on there. Uh, our Facebook page and group is It's a Wrap with Rap. The group is growing very nicely. Uh, I think we're approaching almost 800 people. Instagram, It's a Wrap with Rap podcast, and all the episodes are on YouTube. It's a Wrap with Rap, the podcast uncut. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Please stay safe. And for now, it's a wrap. <laughs>